The Nazis established Auschwitz in 1940 in the Polish suburbs, uh, and they built a complex of camps that became central to Hitler's pursuit that he called the final solution to the Jewish question. Nazis would end up murdering over 6 million Jews throughout the Holocaust. As prisoners arrived, men, women, and children, no matter their age, no matter any kind of social standing they may have had, they were separated and immediately executed. Daily mass executions, starvation, disease, and torture transformed Auschwitz into one of the most lethal and terrifying concentration camps and extermination centers of World War II. All these Jews murdered, tortured, regardless of any, uh, any aspect of their life. In January of 1945, Soviet soldiers liberated the camp to find unspeakable horrors as the result of these Nazis and what they did to these Jewish people. Estimates suggest that Nazis murdered 85% of all people that were sent to Auschwitz. The Holocaust will forever be burned into history as one of the most disgusting displays of anti-Semitism this world has ever seen. Now, at the time, historians and perhaps even the elderly that are still around today remember and recall the prophetic promises that God gave in the Bible that he would forever watch over his people, Israel. Passages like Zechariah 2, verse 8, Deuteronomy 32, verses 11 and 12, Deuteronomy 33, verse 29, Psalm 120. Verses 4 through 7, all alluding to the fact that God would forever watch over his people Israel. On October 7, 2023, the Palestinian terror group Hamas opened a gruesome and brutal attack upon Israel. We're over a month into this attack, and innocent people from both nations are still dying. And this, this conflict has led many to ask the question once more, will God still preserve his people, Israel? And so today, that's exactly what I want to talk about. And I want to ask the question, is Israel still God's chosen people? Through this, uh, through this lesson, I want to talk about a little bit about the history of Israel I want to ask the question, was Israel still God's chosen people through their disobedience? I want to ask the question, is modern-day Israel and modern-day Jews still God's chosen people? I want to talk about some of the false claims surrounding the current conflict in Israel and also what our responsibility is, if any, to Israel. But before we go any further in our study today, we have a privilege to go before God in prayer. So at this time, let's do I believe before we can learn about when Israel was established, I think it's important to learn a little bit of an overview on why Israel was such a critical part of the Messiah. In the Garden of Eden, when mankind chose to disobey God and bring sin into the world, the relationship between God and mankind was never the same. You know, before mankind sinned, he had perfect fellowship with God. Man was perfect. And as a result, they got to enjoy, mankind got to enjoy that perfect relationship with God. And that's the relationship that we have hope for in some sense as a Christian, but even more so in eternity. We will get to enjoy that fellowship that Adam had with God at that point. But when mankind sinned, that relationship between God and mankind changed. 
No more would Adam get to walk in the cool of the garden with God anymore. No longer would mankind stand before God as a perfect being. All of that changed. In Genesis 3, verse 15, we read what scholars call the proto-evangelium, and that's just a fancy word that means the first gospel proclamation. And that's important. The scripture says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, why is that considered the first gospel proclamation? Well, this passage right here demonstrates to us that, yes, Satan would deal a devastating blow, a critical blow. But ultimately, through the fulfillment of the Messiah, God would be victorious, meaning mankind will be victorious if they choose to obey God. Now, one of the ways that Jesus, when he was here in his ministry, he would earn credibility. He would earn the ears of his listeners by saying, you have heard it said, or the law, have you heard the law and the prophets? And he'd use statements like that as a way to demonstrate that these laws that you hold so dear are pointing to me, to me being the one, as we'll see in a little bit, that's going to bring you a new law. And by being able to point to these prophecies in the Old Testament and the old law, hopefully, and in, in, in many cases, people were able to see that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the one that was foretold of for centuries prior to be the one to come away to take away their sin. Israel played a big, crucial part in the fulfillment of these prophecies. In Genesis 49, verse 10, the Bible says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, while this passage says Judah, we know that Judah was a tribe of Israel that ultimately became the southern kingdom after Israel, the northern kingdom, went off seeking false gods, and, and ultimately Judah would come to do the same as we'll talk about uh, eventually. But the, the, important, the important thing to realize here is that all the way from the beginning, all the way from the first few chapters of the Bible, God had a plan to redeem mankind for that initial sin that was committed in the garden, and that would come through Israel, as we'll talk about shortly. So when did, was, was the nation of Israel established? Well, first of all, obedient, it started with obedience to God through the actions of Abraham. Abraham was the first of the Hebrew patriarchs. He's a figure that's revered in all three of what's considered monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. All three of those, uh, of those religious groups, while they may obviously differ on some very fundamental doctrine, they all believe that there was one God, and they all believed that that religion grew out of a faith to Abraham. Abram, at the time, was called upon by God to leave his homeland in Ur in Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia for the purpose of being a father to many nations. Now, Abram would ultimately go on to have eight sons, but only one of those sons, the son with his uh, wife Sarah, was the one who was the one God promised, which was Isaac. Isaac had Jacob, and this is where we start to see the beginning of Israel in the Bible. In Genesis 32, verses 22 through 32, the Bible says, whoops, missed one. Oh, man, we'll see. 
Well, oh well. Make sure I didn't get off track here. There we go. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Peniel, the sun rose on him, for he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and hip and the muscle that shrank. I think that there's a lot going on here, more than I'm prepared to, more than I understand and more than I'm able to talk about today. But I do think that there's an important point to realize here is that this man who Jacob was wrestling was God himself. It was God. After Jacob's confession to God in in Genesis 32, verse 27, the Lord did something rather unexpected, you might say. Now, we talked several months ago when we talked about the importance of names, that any time God changed a name in the Bible, when he took it upon himself to do that, there was a reason for it. And we see that, that reason in this passage when he says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel for he gave a purpose, uh, uh, pointed out a significance for the difference in that name. Jacob's name would now mean he who struggles or strives with God and with men. And this name Israel is given to Jacob because in a sense he had striven with God and with people according to verse 28. After God had reached out and touched and dislocated Jacob's hip, Jacob was no longer able to continue in this tussle with God, you might say. There is an important thing that took place, though. He had one thing he could do, and that was cling to God and lean on his mercy, on his compassion, according to verse 26. In his weakness, in Jacob's weakness, in his feeble uh, uh, um compromised position, you might say. Jacob asked for and received blessing from the Lord. And this is a vital lesson that we can can learn a lot from today. That lesson is that Jacob's victory here, no matter how great of a man Jacob was, no matter the legacy that Jacob left, no matter how many times we read of in scripture, the, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, There's an important part here, and that is that Jacob's victory was not the result of himself. It was not the result of his legacy. It was the result. It was not the result of his own strength and his own effort. His uh, uh, victory, his blessing came as the result of his desperate weakness. He clung to God until blessing was acquired. This would become the epitome of Israel. As Israel grew and as they accomplished God's will, it was only the response of the result of God's blessing, not their own. 
No matter how great of a people Israel was at times, they were great because they were obedient to God. When Israel would go off and follow their own will, we saw the result of that. And God removed that blessing. And God allowed them to suffer defeat. God allowed them to suffer suffer hard times. So we see that through God's promise to Abraham, Israel was established by Abraham's son, Jacob. Jacob would go on to have a son, or, or Israel, we should say, would go on to have a son named Joseph. And you know Joseph, the, the, the favorite of the, the group and the one who received the coat of many colors and his uh, 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 brothers were jealous and envious of him. And his brothers teamed up against Joseph, but Joseph became blessed by God. And he says in the latter part of Genesis, he when, when, once they're reconciled, he tells his brothers that what you did to me, you intended for evil, but God intended it for good. And so through the good of Joseph, through, through Abraham, and through the faith of Abraham, through the faith of Isaac, through the faith of Jacob, even through the faith of Joseph, was born this mighty nation. Joseph, through the sins of his brothers, was relocated to Egypt, and that's where he grew in power and in political standing, and that's where ultimately him and his brothers, his father and his brothers moved to, and that's where the nation of Israel started to see their growth. That's where they started to become blessed by God, and they became the nation of Israel, blessed by God. They became God's chosen people. Israeli tour guides sometimes say Israel may be 300 miles long, 30 miles wide, but it's 3,000 years deep. Charles Crawfammer said in the Weekly Standard on May 11th in 1998, Israel is the very embodiment of Jewish continuity. It's the only nation on earth that inhabits the same land, bears the same name, speaks the same language, and worships the same God that it did 3,000 years ago. And so that's where Israel started, and that's the circumstances that, that surrounded the creation, the institution of what was considered to be God's chosen people. And there's some questions that come as the result of that. We'll talk about that uh, shortly. But as, as I mentioned to, alluded to a minute ago, there were many times that Israel acted like God's chosen people. They acted like a people that wanted to serve God. They had faith. They obeyed him. They did everything they were supposed to, but there were also times they didn't. There were plenty of times that they didn't, as we all know. The times that God plagued them with various trials as the result of their disobedience. And so that 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 brings forth that question that I wanted to ask is what it was God, was Israel still God's chosen people through that disobedience or when they disobeyed God were they cast away from him were they cut off from him many times God compared himself to Israel as a husband was to a wife and we see that comparison also between Christ and the church and being that marriage was an institution that was ordained by God from the beginning I can't help but think that there is extreme significance in that that the fact that God considered himself Israel's uh, a, a husband that God that Jesus considered himself the 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 church as his bride 
and the fact that God ordained marriage as the very first institution on this earth, that he is not demonstrating the power and the significance and the importance in that functional marriage relationship. Now, I want you to think about that in the context of Israel being God's chosen people today. And we'll get to that. In Isaiah 54, verse 5, the Bible says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. Jeremiah 3, verse 14 says, Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. I believe that God many times referred or or, uh, um, reinforced Israel as his his bride as a way to assure his people of his undying love for them. Israel often proved to be an unfaithful spouse. Israel many times committed spiritual adultery by worshiping false gods and forsaking the Lord. In fact, it was because of that type of action, that spiritual adultery, that God spoke these words in Jeremiah 3, verses 8 through 10. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. So it came to pass through her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. Now, in this passage right here, God warns Judah against committing the same spiritual adultery that Israel had, which was ultimately one of, you know, kind of the reason that they split to begin with. God was warning them, don't follow the example of your neighbors to the north in that northern kingdom of Israel. In their idolatry, Israel had polluted the land and broken their covenant with God. And due to the enormity of this sin, and it was an enormous sin, God punished Israel. And he illustrates this punishment like this. He says that he divorced Israel and sent them away. He says, I had put her away. And I believe this is referring to the Assyrian captivity, but the the Assyrian invasion, I should say, and and which resulted in the removal of Israel from their homeland. You can read about that in 2 Kings 17. But even given the example of Israel's divorce, Judah still remained unfaithful. And in fact, by, by reading the words of God here, you might think that Judah almost seemed as if they were daring God to enact the same punishment on them. Like maybe they thought they were too righteous for even God. Having just cause, God, who was who's the faithful husband, divorced his unfaithful spouse, Israel. And to make matters worse, God asks a question here in Jeremiah 3, verse 1. He says, They say if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and become another becomes another um another man's, may he return to her again? Would not that land be greatly polluted? So now if Israel is is God's spouse and Israel is, is now unfaithful and God is saying here, according to Mosaic law, the answer to this question was no. The answer to a man who had divorced his wife could not later remarry her, according to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. 
Once he sent her away and she became another man's wife, which Israel did by committing spiritual adultery, by following idolatrous ways, they could never come back to God, according to Mosaic law. According to God's metaphor, Israel seems to be in a hopeless situation. Israel had been divorced by God and now, according to these laws, could never be accepted back. But God's mercy intervenes, according to Jeremiah 3 verse 12, return backsliding Israel, says the Lord, I will not cause my anger to fall on you for I am merciful, says the Lord, I will not remain angry forever. Now, I believe God is promising to do here what Mosaic law could could not do or could not allow, and that was to restore this broken uh, uh, marriage with an unfaithful spouse. Now, many times uh, well, that kind of reminds me of Jesus and some of the claims that people made to Jesus. You know, many people, even Jews, Jews today, their claim against Christianity is that Jesus was not the Messiah because the real Messiah would not advocate or would not uh, 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 encourage breaking Mosaic law, which Jesus never really did. Jesus was giving an idea of what law was to come. I remember George Batty gave the illustration one time of Medicare. Uh, I think it was Obamacare. And, and that for, for several years leading up to Obamacare, there was people talking about under the new law, these are going to be the guidelines. He wasn't advocating for people to break Mosaic law. Jesus obeyed and honored and respected Mosaic law. He came to fulfill Mosaic law. But then he also says in Mark 2, verse 27, Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, if you think about God in, in Israel here, you know, according to Deuteronomy, Israel was not, God was not allowed to take Israel back to him based on Mosaic law. But I think we also have to remember who made the law? Who is the mediator of the law? Who is the one who has the authority over that law? I'm reminded of, of somebody one time that said that every law that we follow under this dispensation and the dispensations in previous times, every law that has been required of us from God is meant for our protection. And is meant out of the uh, is is the result of his love for us to keep us a clean people, a healthy people, an obedient people. And so I don't believe that even if that's what was taking place, that we can point to God and say, "You can't do that. You can't take Israel back because of your law." I don't think that's the case. It was unthinkable that a human husband would take back his unfaithful wife, but God is not bound to the same laws that mankind is. God is greater than we are. He can and he will forgive his wayward people when they repent of their sin and seek him again. God used the shocking illustration of a divorce to really emphasize, to stress the Israelites' guilt before him. But God never cut off Israel unilaterally for all of time. In fact, God simply asked them to come back to him, 
to return back to him, to experience his goodness once more. In fact, God said after he divorced Israel, he commands them three times to return. Jeremiah 3, verse 11, 14, and 23. He's advocating for these wayward, uh, his wayward spouse to return to him. Paul talks about this in Romans 11, verses 1 through 6. He says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people who he foreknew. Or do you not know that what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life? But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knees to Baal. Even so, then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Romans 9 through now, Paul talks a great deal throughout the book of Romans about the Israelites and their relationship with God. But Romans 9 through 11 talk about Israel's rejection of God and God's relationship with Israel as the result of their rejection. And the overarching point of these two chapters is really that God is faithful, that God keeps his promise, that what God said before, nothing has changed, as we'll see in a bit. God will always be faithful. Paul is showing us to, in, in, this, in this book, in this letter, but also especially in these few chapters, that in this covenant, in the covenant that we live under today, the new covenant that Israel stands rejected. And they stand rejected for multiple reasons. First of all, because Israel misunderstands the doctrine of the election of Israel. God's choice of Israel as his chosen people, as his special people, you might say, was for service, not for salvation. There's a big difference there. Israel as a nation was chosen by God to serve him in the accomplishment of his foreordained plan to bring the Savior into the world. And this choice or this uh, this this uh, act, the service that these people were under was a national matter. And it was unconditional. But salvation, on the other hand, is not a national matter. We know that salvation comes to anyone who believes. We know that salvation comes to anyone who is obedient to the laws that we are governed under today. When, when you know anybody has the opportunity to have their sins washed away and to have their fellowship restored with the Father. And it doesn't matter what country you live in. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew, whether you're Gentile, whether you're white, whether you're black, whether you're old, whether you're... None of that matters. Salvation has never been a national matter. It is an individual matter, and it's always been, it always has been, and it always will be a conditional matter. It is not an unconditional matter. In the closing verses of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10, Paul shows us that most of the Israelites stand rejected because they have refused to submit to God's plan for redeeming man. Oops, I messed up the slide here. They make the choice, Israel and today, <clears throat> Israel today, make the choice to rest in their position of privilege and merit 
They fail to believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and they've ultimately elected to attempt to establish their own righteousness on the basis of an old law that's not even under effect anymore, that we are not bound by the law of Moses. So, because of these things, and this was the case of of the Israelites in Paul's day, but it's also the case for Israelites today, in our day. The same things apply, the same restrictions or the same, uh, the reasons for their rejection. As a result, the picture that Paul paints throughout the book of Romans is pretty bleak for, for Israel, modern day Israel, I might say. And he says in chapter nine, verse three, that most of the Jews stand before God accursed. They have in fact prepared themselves for destruction. Nine verse 22, though they have followed after the law of righteousness, they have not obtained it. Consequently, they remain willfully ignorant of God's righteousness, and they are by and large a disobedient and stubborn people. Old habits die hard, I suppose, because these same things, these same uh, reasons for their condemnation today, we really see a lot of striking similarities by modern day Jews today. To Israel's frustration, the Gentiles are welcomed into God's kingdom with open arms. In fact, uh, chapter 9, verse 23 verse and 24 shows us that the Gentiles were the object of God's mercy. While astounding to the blind in Israel, God's acceptance of the Gentiles was fully predicted by the prophets, according to chapter 9, verses 25 and 26. The Gentiles, who were not even seeking salvation, found it. And I can, you know, there's part of me that can kind of understand why the Israelites would have been so offended by that. Their ancestors for century after century went through rules, went through regulations, went through laws, went through persecution, went through imprisonment, went through all of these things to receive salvation. And now you're going to offer it to this man who's not even looking for it. Like, I mean, I could kind of understand, but regardless All of this was according to God's plan, all along. So naturally, the question arises in the mind of these Jewish objectors, and Paul says, has God cast away his people? Man, I really messed up my PowerPoint. Is Israel irredeemably lost? Has God given up entirely on the Jews and turned to the Gentiles? Well, the answer, Paul says, is no. In fact, God wants as many Jews to be saved as possible. He even says all of them in Romans 11, verse 26. To that end, therefore, Paul addresses here that God's desire, he he stresses God's desire to save Israel and how he plans to do so. Paul demonstrates that salvation is not a matter of choosing between Jews and Gentiles. Salvation is designed for the blessing and the salvation of both. Because salvation is no longer a national matter. Well, it never has been a national matter, but it's not today. So the question about Israel, in my mind, really compares to us today. You know, when we ask the question, was Israel still God's chosen people through disobedience? Think about it with us. When when you obeyed the gospel... And you were buried with Christ in baptism as the scriptural pattern demonstrates to us. What did you become? A Christian. 
you became a Christian, one who follows after the precepts and the laws of Christ, one who is obedient to the laws of Christ. But if you choose to fall into temptation and you fall away from Christ and you go back into the world that you said that you left, what does that make you then? Well, a Christian. And we've talked about that recently. You're still a Christian. You're an erring Christian. You're a Christian that is not in the right relationship with Jesus Christ. Something is, is, is has broken that fellowship with Jesus Christ, but you are still a Christian. You are an erring Christian, but we serve that same God that, that, that referred to Israel as his divorced spouse, who he was waiting for, who he was begging for them to come back to restore their relationship with him. And that is the same God we serve today. And so when we go off, if we go off into sin, we serve that same God who is loving, who, who is loving toward us, who is patient with us and who is waiting for us to return to him. Israel was the same way. Christianity today, as I said, is not a national matter. We do not need to be in any certain lineage to be God's chosen people today. We simply must obey him. And by doing so, by obeying him, by being obedient to his laws, we become his people. Israel and the foreshadowing of the Messiah, as I said, was a national matter. You did have to be a citizen of Israel to receive the benefits of that relationship. But just like God waited on Israel to restore their relationship, as I said, he does for us too. So yes, I do believe that Israel was still God's chosen people through their disobedience, however, and a big however. I mean, the key in my mind to this question, God's blessings upon his chosen people would cease when they started to fall away from him. And those blessings would be restored upon their repentance and upon their restoration. In Hosea 3 verse 1, the Bible says, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like, listen, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who took to other gods and loved the raisin cakes of the pains. Now what love is that? What love might God have for a people who he has poured out his love and poured out his blessings upon his compassion, his patience. And for these people, especially for these people to have literally witnessed the miracles and witnessed the things that God brought them through and for them to say, ah, oh, we'd rather serve this statue of stainless steel over here. And yet God still loved them. And regardless of their arrogance and their, their, uh, idiocy, you might say, God still waited for them to come back to him. And so that begs the question, is modern day Israel and modern day Jews still God's chosen people? You'll have to come back next time to get the answer. I think I'm going to stop there today.